I find that the best leaders always have some sort of story of resilience, of major setbacks. I can't tell you of anybody that I respect that has achieved any significant level of success that doesn't have numerous horror stories of all the things that were supposed to come together and did not go their way. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. This is Jessica, head of coaching strategy at Crisp, and today we're flipping the script for a special edition episode to get Michael's take on why ideas are not as valuable as execution, how to strategically select which ideas are worth pursuing, and the key to developing resilience in yourself and your team. If you were jumping in front of that obstacle and you were saying, here's exactly how you solve this problem before they can encounter that point of pain or frustration that is a necessary part of any sort of growth or evolution, you are robbing them of their own personal growth and their professional growth. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Welcome back to another AMMA. I am excited. I look forward to this every single time we sit down to record these. I'm absolutely thrilled. And it's been amazing just hearing some of the feedback we've gotten on these AMMA episodes. So for those of you that are tuning in for the first time, we do a few different types of episodes on this podcast. We've got our traditional interviews. That is with experts in the legal industry and beyond. We also have our Encore editions. This is where we bring back episodes from the past several years of the podcast, some of our most popular episodes. So People sometimes start listening to the podcast at different times and they may not have heard a certain episode or could use a refresher. And then the AMMA, which you're listening to, Ask Michael Mogul Anything, where you guys submit the questions, you send us a text, 404-531-7691, and then we answer your questions here on the podcast. And before we get started, I just want to say that for those of you that have been listening to the podcast, you may have noticed an absence of ads and sponsors. And we do not run any ads on this podcast. We get requests all the time from people who want to pay us money to sponsor the podcast. We say no every single time. It probably would be the right decision if the goal was money, but we like to keep this podcast unfiltered, uncut. We want to be able to say whatever we want to say. We want our guests to be able to say whatever they want to say. We do not want to be censored, and we want to be able to offer everything, all access. You can hear it the way it's meant to be shared, and no one has to be dialed back or anything like that at all. So in return... There is a fee for the podcast. And my only ask is that if you get any value whatsoever from this episode or any other episode of the podcast, that you simply share the podcast and leave us a review. That's it. If you don't find it valuable, you don't have to leave a review, but this helps us reach more people, helps us keep the podcast free, and we will not have any sponsors or run any ads. And with that, let's do it. Let's do the AMMA. Awesome. So as you guys know, if you've been listening, we try to theme these questions because we have hundreds and hundreds that we've not gotten to yet. So this week, I really just want to focus on how do we get shit done? So with that, Michael, let's kick it off. Ideas seem to be the fun part of entrepreneurship, but execution seems to be where rubber meets the road. How have you created an environment at Crisp where execution is valued as much as, if not more than, the generation of ideas? This really always 
comes back to the leader and, and you yourself as the leader of what you value and what you prioritize. Now, many times, especially when you see a shark tank culture and entrepreneurship culture, that there is this over-glamorization of ideas and ideation, you almost place this greater weight on coming up with the idea. Now, in my experience, I have found that ideas are really a very, 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 very small part of creating anything great. In fact, I would say maybe the idea is 5% or less of the value. And if someone says, I have a great idea, I say, well, how much do you want for this idea of yours? Maybe $3, $4, $5? Because you can have a great idea with terrible execution and fail miserably, but you can have an okay idea with incredible execution and be incredibly successful. I look back into my early childhood. I remember when I was in middle school, I had this idea for this type of athletic clothing that could wick sweat from your body and allow you to be a better athlete and to perform better. Because if you wear like typical cotton shirts and things like that, you get sweaty, it'd start to weigh you down. And I had this wonderful idea that I was in middle school. But the team over at Under Armour did an amazing job of executing on this idea and built this incredible company. So my idea was worth very little and I was not probably the only person with that idea. I had zero execution behind it. The traditional type of entrepreneur, and I don't love the term visionary, but let's say you are that, you probably have ideas for days. You probably have a list of hundreds or thousands of ideas. Doesn't mean they're all good ideas, but how often have you been paid for an idea? And how often has the market paid you for an idea? Because to my understanding, we're always paid for our execution. So when it comes to fostering that type of environment within your organization, well, one, one of our core values is results-driven and another core value is solutions-focused. Also, the way in which we run the organization from a data-driven standpoint, when we do any sort of value sharing, so team members have base salaries, but they also gain incentives, and incentives are tied to actual drivers and moving the needle in the business. So in fact, our theme for the year for the organization is called Drivers Only, kind of went with the motorsport theme, and it's all around moving the needle and turning the dial that we wanted to emphasize us all being individual drivers and not passengers. So not simply existing and breathing the air and consuming the food and existing in the room and blending in with the furniture, but more importantly, being true drivers of creating critical results within the organization of something that actually moves the needle. And we reward people for that. And that is what is incentivized. And I'm a big believer in that incentives really drive people's performance and they drive people's behaviors. So I think that's one aspect of it. And then the other thing, as I mentioned, is really you as a leader understanding that you don't place an over-reliance, over-importance of ideas themselves, even for myself. I look at it and say, yeah, okay, ideas are great, but that's a very small part of any initiative. Whenever we have any sort of campaign that we run, any initiative, any expansion of the business, there is a meeting about the ideas and fleshing out the scope of something, but then 95% or more of the focus is all on execution and the quality of execution and proper deliverability and just making sure that that is so dialed in because the market pays for execution. Absolutely. And as an operator brain over here, this could not be more true. I think you've actually called yourself before a reformed marketer. I say this having written a book on marketing, right? So if I could go back and tell myself something even years ago, I would have gone the opposite order because nowadays marketing is really like the cherry on top. And with most organizations, even when you look at a marketing function in a business or in a law firm, sometimes people see that and say, well, we should have a lot of ideas for different types of campaigns and different initiatives and things that we can do. But now that we look at it as our marketing function has grown, it is largely an operational function. So with everything that people see, even listening to this very podcast, we'll spend an hour recording, but then the majority of the work that's involved and what people see as the deliverables is all in the execution from the actual post-production of the episodes 
to the show notes, to the quote cards, to the vlogs, to the video bits, to the social implementation, to the paid ad spend, to the reporting, to the data and the analytics, all that is an operational function. And to be able to do that consistently day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, that's just one initiative. That's just the podcast. There's hundreds of other things that we have going on in the marketing team. And that is largely an operational function. An idea would be if you did something once and you said, oh, I had a cool idea for a campaign. Wonderful. But can you execute on it every single day, every single month, every single year? And I remember years ago, John Morgan, love him or hate him, he shared this bit of insight with me. And he said, you know, Mike, what really separates a okay business from an elite business is can you do what you were doing 10,000 times a month? And can you execute at the highest level without any compromise? Because doing something well one time, it's okay. A lot of people can do that. Doing it 10,000 times every single month. Now that is execution. Absolutely. And a quick follow-up to that as well with getting shit done, but how can you share your process of taking an idea from conception to completion? So how do you ensure it doesn't just remain an idea? So this involves a filtering of ideas because I think one of the greatest apps on our phones is the Notes app. Different people journal, sometimes they write things down. I've got the Notes app. Anytime I have something that pops into my mind, I'll just put it in the Notes app and it's just a bunch of ideas. Now, it's important that it goes there before it goes to the team because otherwise the team would be bombarded by new things that I think we should do without them having gone through a filtration process. And the filtration process that I go through is essentially weighing things on three real aspects, right? So one is time, the amount of time investment necessary to execute on this initiative, money, which is the financial investment or even the investment of resources. And then the third one is impact. And what type of impact will this make within the organization? So you've got time, money, and impact. And if you can find something that is low time, low money, and high impact, absolutely do it. Those are like the lowest hanging fruit. Those are the honey pots. Absolutely execute. But generally what you find is the ideas or initiatives that have the highest amount of impact typically also require the highest investment of resources of time and money. And then on the converse, if you find something that is high time, high money, and low impact, throw it out. So generally at this point, we will not do anything unless it has high impact because it's just not the highest and best use of our time. And with the number of opportunities and ideas that we all have, it's important to focus on things that are just going to be the highest impact. For me, I'm not as discouraged when something's going to require a greater investment of financial resources or even time resources. But when it comes to like the time resources, you have to look at the overall organization capacity and the capacity within teams. And is this something that we can do right now or must it be prioritized later in the year or into the next quarter or the following year? Because the money is easy, right? You just write the check. So if you have a problem and money solves the problem, well, then you really don't have a problem. You can just write the check, right? If you don't have the money, that's a different problem in and of itself. But generally, that's the easiest part. The most difficult is usually the time investment, which is really a function of capacity within your team. Because time doesn't mean this is only going to take me to do it. Most of the initiatives that we have are team-wide efforts, department-wide efforts. There's numerous people involved, and they're working on a lot of different things. So you don't want to have competing priorities wherever you can avoid that. So I run things through the filter of time, money, and impact. And if I see something that's going to be a low time investment and a low financial investment and high impact, we're doing that right away. If it's something that is a high time investment and a high financial investment, but is going to have high impact, we will absolutely do it. It's just a question of where does that sit in our priorities of whether it's something that we need to do this quarter or next quarter or push it further out. So that's really the filtering process that I go through. You really have to kill your darlings, right? I'll list out a hundred ideas and of those 100, maybe there's three, five worth doing and then two in there that are truly, truly, truly excellent and ones that are really going to move the needle. So it's important to go through an iterative process to really map it out. And then also when you have any sort of idea, it's really being clear, spending the time to outline clarity of what the success look like, 
What does the outcome look like? What's the upside if you do it? What's the downside if you don't do it? Who's going to be involved in mapping that out? And I'll map out those things before you even bring it to the team. And that helps me go through the filtration process of being very clear on what it is that I want, what that idea looks like. So it's not just something along the lines of, we should be the Uber for XYZ. That's just saying words. It's really mapping out exactly well, what does success look like? What are the success criteria? What does it look like when it's finished? What type of impact does it have? What resources does it require? What capacity implications does it have? It's really thinking through all of that. And if it still passes all of those tests, yes, then you can bring that to the team. Absolutely. Speaking of getting things done, can you talk about a time when someone on your team stood out because of their ability to execute effectively? What did they do differently and how can we learn from them? So I have a tremendous amount of respect for great executors. In fact, over the years, I believe that one of the most important things that leaders can do or something that I've aimed to do is surround myself with people that are just masters of execution. Life just becomes so much easier, better, more exciting. I think if you look at it on the converse, there's sometimes nothing more frustrating than being around a bunch of people where everybody just has a bunch of ideas and nothing can move forward. And there's no progress that's being made. Everything becomes a brainstorming session of wouldn't it be nice or wouldn't it be cool? That type of nonsense. And then you're frustrated because at the end of the day, no progress was made. A week goes by, a month goes by, a quarter goes by. And you're like, but I had all these great ideas. And the people around me like, what is it? Why can't we move things forward? And not everybody is a great executor. So I think an example of this is our COO, Alex. She runs the day-to-day of the organization. We meet every single week, multiple times a week. But when we're mapping things out, we go through all of our company initiatives every single week, the status of those, any company rocks, any progress on any campaigns, projects, those sort of things. And when we're mapping anything out, basically, if you go off of my preceding answer, where I map out the scope of something and we sit down and go through it. And then from there, she maps out the execution plan, including every single deliverable that must be met, who's going to be accountable for what, what the timelines look like, what the milestones look like. And then we are meeting on a consistent cadence and she's providing me with those updates. Now, it's not always her even doing every step of it. Sometimes she's delegating that to, let's say, our director of operations who's delegating to somebody else. I mean, it just kind of moves through the chain of how do we really expand our capacity and execute multiple projects at the same time, but have good rhythms and consistent updates to know how things are progressing. If they're stuck, so we can kind of go through those and address any challenges or any problems. But an example could be right now we're working on a major expansion of our ecosystem and we've gone through what are the success criteria? What does it look like? We've gone through the whole dime investment, financial investment, the impact, and we have hundreds of milestones for this one expansion, for example, all the needs required in terms of all the standard operating procedures that must be created, all the hiring needs, all the training and development needs, how we're going to position it, how we're going to market it, what it's going to look like, the impact that it will make, internal checks and balances, the data and analytics, all of that is being mapped out. And when you look at through a list of things, it's like a thousand things must be done in order for something to really get off the ground and have great execution. The same goes anytime we conduct a workshop or when we do any of our conferences. If people only knew the behind the scenes of what goes into a crisp game changer summit, they see it and they see the speakers on stage. But if there was a list of items and I'm confident there is one, the good news is I just don't ever have to see it. There's probably thousands of items that must be checked off every single time one of these events comes together from the mailers to the gift bags, to what's happening in terms of catering, to what's happening on AV, to the everything that's happening from the production process, every single video that goes live, what's happening during breaks, even the check-in process itself would be a hundred step plus process. So if you add all this up, it's thousands of things that have to be executed on and none of this will happen if you don't have a team that's focusing on execution and really dialing things out. It's like, how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. So sometimes this can seem overwhelming, 
but it really starts off by outlining what are all the success criteria, then establishing milestones around things, and then you have clear accountability so you don't have two people accountable for one thing. It's one person accountable for initiative. The deadlines, what must be due, and then you basically work backwards from there. One of our conferences, for example, we're working on that at least six months out, and we have milestones that have to happen every single month and every single quarter. It's not something that comes together the 30 days out. Even for us, six months, that, that kind of feels like a bit of a rush. Sometimes it's been nine months. Or, oh, it's or like even a more. year. I mean, we've yeah. already selected the venue for the next conference by the time we host a conference. So we, yeah. Well, at this point, we're already thinking about 2024, right? In 2023, it doesn't even happen until November, but you have to do that. And it's being able to plan ahead and we're already working on things for 2024. So what does that tell you, right? So it's really being able to break it down. Fortunately, I have a lot of help. And for leaders that are listening to it that do not have that type of help, it is making sure that you have people around you that are very operationally minded. And if you don't have them, you'll probably need to hire for them. But there's people who absolutely love this. There's people who love breaking down tasks and initiatives into dates and deadlines and timelines and also being able to outline success criteria and writing processes and ensuring these things are repeatable and then auditing those processes to ensure that they're being done correctly. There's people who truly love to do that. And it's allowing them to do that part. It's a symbiotic relationship where it's very, very important. But again, I'll tell you, even in our last conference this past November at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, sometimes people see me or another speaker on stage and they don't realize that there's hundreds of people completing thousands of individual tasks and items that have to be executed flawlessly for that just to come together. Absolutely. It is truly symbiotic, like you said. It looks like a symphony, really, when it comes together. Finally here, it is often said that resilience is a trait of successful leaders. How has your personal resilience influenced the execution of your vision and plans for CRISP? Whenever the question comes up of what is necessary for success, what is the differentiator amongst people that is a success criteria, I always say it is resilience. If you really were to break that down, you just don't give up. You can't fail if you don't quit. You can experience setbacks. But if you keep going, you eventually get there. And of course, it's important to have a learning process involved there where the habits and behaviors change when you're getting certain types of feedback loops that may tell you that the things that you're doing are not successful and you have to adjust and make pivots. And that's absolutely fine. But the biggest thing that I see that sabotages people's success is they just quit four feet from gold. They don't even know how close they are to that next breakthrough, but they simply give up. And if you never give up, you can eventually get there, whether that takes you a year or five years or 10 years or 20 years or more, but you eventually get to where you're going. And when you think about fostering this type of resilience, I treat it like a muscle. So meaning that there's certain things that if you were to put somebody in a situation that is absolutely overwhelming that they've never experienced before, there's going to be one of two things that happens. Either they bend or they break. And if they don't break, it's kind of like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I find that the best leaders always have some sort of story of resilience, of major setbacks. I can't tell you of anybody that I respect that has achieved any significant level of success that doesn't have numerous horror stories of all the things that were supposed to come together and did not go their way. If you're listening to this podcast and you are experiencing days and weeks and months where everything is going your way, you're probably not ambitious enough and you're not setting large enough targets because running an organization and achieving a grand vision involves things not going your way. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be barriers you have to overcome, problems you have to solve, things you have to figure out. It is inevitable. That is just the way that it is. So every time you solve one of these problems, Ray Dalio, who wrote the book Principles, he has this great expression where he says that every time that you overcome an obstacle or you solve a major problem, you gain a gem. You gain essentially an insight or learning or something in that feedback loop that you now understand how to solve that problem if it were to arise again or solve a problem like that problem. And the more gems that you acquire, 
the more wise that you become, the more insightful you become, and that empowers you to be able to solve larger and larger problems and overcome greater obstacles. So the best way to foster it is really, number one, you yourself have to be a resilient SOB because things are caught, not taught. People have to see that in your organization. Number two, it is allowing your team to experience failure and setbacks and not step in the way, not coddle. Now, you don't want someone to be completely without any help, without any support, because then they're just going to flounder. But it's knowing if you solve that problem for them, you have robbed them of the opportunity to actually learn and grow. That is exactly what you were doing. If you were jumping in front of that obstacle and you were saying, here's exactly how you solve this problem before they can encounter that point of pain or frustration that is a necessary part of any sort of growth or evolution, you are robbing them of their own personal growth and their professional growth. So it's allowing them to struggle. And I know this isn't easy for a lot of leaders, and I'm not saying this in like a sadistic way, or I'm not encouraging you to be a masochist or punish people or anything like that. It's just allowing people to struggle and to go through that critical thinking process of having to work through a problem and being frustrated and then gaining a breakthrough. And then the biggest thing is the confidence that they gain through solving that problem. And that's something that no one could ever take away from them. That is how people become people of value so that they start to gain personal confidence in their ability to think through problems and solve problems and overcome obstacles. And you do that enough times, this is how you actually empower truly capable people. Now they can basically take on even larger challenges and even larger initiatives because they know that, okay, whatever it is that I encounter, I can work through it. I can be resourceful. I can figure it out. And if you stand in the way of that, then they're going to be skillless, valueless, lack confidence. Yeah. And on the note of resilience with team members as well, there is a follow-up How do you foster resilience among your team members? And can you even foster this? Do you believe that you basically have it or you don't? Well, I think the hunger you have or you don't. I think the resilience is the same thing I just said in that you allow them to fail. You allow them to struggle. And it's not really truly failure. Now, you don't want to put somebody in a situation where if they mess up, it could bring the whole organization down. There are some mistakes and some failures that perhaps are more expensive than others. So you want to be able to have some sort of threshold there. But at the same time, think about how you learned, even as a leader, as an entrepreneur, on your journey, didn't every decision you made, was it the right decision? Did everything that you did, was it always a positive trajectory and up and to the right on a graph? You think about it, failure is just another name for experience. So allowing someone to also gain that experience and learn themselves and not standing in the way of their own personal growth and professional growth. Now you can come in and you can coach them. You can ask them feedback questions are wonderful of helping them think through problems and think through challenges, but not giving them the answer. So it's allowing them to really develop the mental pathways and the thought processes required to solve problems and asking them, okay, so let's say they're struggling with a certain problem and you can ask them, okay, well, so what are three potential solutions? And then you go through each solution and say, well, what would be the upside of that? What would be the downside of that? You just encourage them to start thinking about second order consequences, the third order consequences, and then they can make informed decisions. But you also foster a culture of ownership where they can own decisions because if you tell them to do something, then it's not really their idea and it's not really their decision. So when it works out, great. They don't really know why it worked out. And if it doesn't work out, then they blame you. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that is all I have today on Getting Shit Done. And we'll see you next time. Until next time. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with Michael Mogul. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that we can help you grow your law firm. 
Number one, download the first chapter of Michael's book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot Michael a text at 404-531-7691 and ask him any question you'd like. You might just hear the answer on the next episode. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it will help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit LegalPodcast.com.